Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of the Sports Map Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Kane. This is a podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. Now, in the 16th episode of the podcast, we are chatting to Paula Charlton. Paula is the Performance Health Manager for Triathlon Australia. She's also previously worked with the Melbourne Football Club in the AFL and spent a lot of time at the AIS, where she completed her PhD in groin injury prevention. In today's chat, we chatted through a number of topics, which was really quite interesting, uh, starting with some bone stress-related aspects in the triathletes through to some of her groin and hamstring research, as well as some of the work she did with the Australian volleyball team on patellar tendinopathy. So I really enjoyed the chat and I hope you guys do as well. And before we do jump into it, we have had plenty going on at the Sports Map over the last couple of months. As mentioned previously, we have two events coming up in this October. So that's the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium in Sydney. And then followed two weeks later, we are in the Gold Coast for the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport. Both of those events are selling really quickly and have been very popular. We've also just announced a a fantastic lineup of speakers that's going to be a larger scale conference held in Melbourne in March 2022. And that's looking at, I guess, the football codes and the injuries related to those different football codes being rugby, soccer and Australian rules football. So the lineup of speakers is phenomenal. Uh, We have some live music at the end, plenty of chance for networking with the entertainment there and and a few great awards to be giving out. So have a look on the website for all the details on that and, and all the speakers excited to announce we have a brand new masterclass and that's with Tim McGrath talking to ACL Rehabilitation and Return to Sport. It's a 45 minute clip with heaps of practical exercises in there and some fantastic takeaways with Tim talking to some of those key things not to miss during rehabilitation, things to watch out for, key coaching points uh, and some really great feedback and, and points around both return to sport uh, and return to sport testing. Clinical takeaways are plenty so have a look at that and there's a nice little promo clip you can see what sort of stuff you'll get in that video. So head over there and you'll see that along with the other masterclass videos from Jordan Menaguchi and Steve Saunders. All right, we uh, appreciate your ongoing support and listening to our podcast. So we hope you enjoy this podcast with Paula Charlson. Welcome to the podcast, Paula. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, uh, before we get started, can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your professional career and what you're up to at the moment? Yeah, well, I'm a physio and an S&C by background and started out um, started out sort of my professional uh, a career in prof- professional sport in football in AFL in Melbourne um, quite a few years ago, um, came through sort of BFL um, and AFL, worked at the Melbourne Football Club uh, for about five years and um, shared a training venue um, at Amy Park with Melbourne Storm and subsequently did some work as a strength and conditioning coach as well um, at the Melbourne Storm. So I was really lucky to, to see um, to like uh, codes um, and have experience with sort of SNC and and physiotherapy physiotherapy in both and and from there I I took a job at uh, the AIS so they'd advertised for um, a physio who was also a strength and conditioning coach and I think at the time the job was born out of uh, trying to save money I think they wanted um, <laughs> to get somebody that could do two jobs for the price of one. Uh, but it was an area I was I was really passionate about and really excited to see a see a job see a job advertised as a physio and strength and conditioning coach and yeah subsequently spent 
um, about five years at the AIS and um, was really lucky to be exposed to like a number of a number of different Olympic sports and and a really good um, really exciting sort of professional development environment um, environment at the AIS and exposed to lots of um, travel and international competition. And from there, um, well, at the AIS, I, I developed a real passion for injury prevention and understanding the, the systems for injury prevention and undertook some um, some more formal education in, in an area called epidemiology, which at the time sort of always had to explain the definition of. But since COVID, actually one benefit to come out of COVID was not having to explain what epidemiology is anymore. And um Pre-COVID, I actually used to explain that um, uh, when I would talk about epidemiology, that preventing a hamstring strain, the, the systems and the principles that you use to prevent a hamstring strain, um, actually the same as the way you prevent, I, I used an example at the time, Ebola virus. So, um, yeah, preventing preventing a virus, you use the same the same principles, but now I can, I can use COVID as an example and it's always a little bit... <laughs> strange thinking about preventing a you know a musculoskeletal injury in the same fashion that you would um prevent a a, a virus a world worldwide pandemic but the principles are actually the same so I became really really interested in that and being able to apply that and I I got working for triathlon Australia um had a big problem with bone stress injuries and we're looking at sort of a unique approach to target that specifically so that's what I was able that's what I've been able to dig my teeth into sort of for for the last three years which has been really exciting and we'll probably touch back on a couple of those things especially around some of the prevention aspects but uh, you mentioned it there a little bit around bone stress like uh, my follow-up question was going to be around what type of injury presentations are most common uh, in the triathlon squad and how are you going about managing those uh, when I joined the sport, we had a look at sort of the data that was existing on our athlete management system and the the injuries that had populated um, for the five years that that had been up and running. That was sort of um, that was sort of my first task. And bone stress injury was uh, the highest incidence and prevalence and was the most severe. So um, about. Uh, one in between one in four and one in two athletes so nearly you know nearly 50 percent um chance that a triathlete would sustain at least one stress fracture throughout their career as a triathlete and that this would set them back um on average six um take them out of the sport for an average six months so it was it was a really huge huge burden um, burden for the sport and that that's sort of where we started the first step with epidemiology is sort of understanding the injury um, the injury profile so we spent quite a bit of time um, interrogating what data there was um, to see to see what the problems were um, yeah and so the the, pre- the prevalence was really high it was slightly higher in in women than it was in men and it was keeping them out of the sport for a long time. And our national performance director, and I, I use this quote from him all the time because I really love it, um, his words were, uh, stress fractures will no longer be a rite of passage in Australian triathlon, which I loved. So, you know, he had a really strong directive that this just wouldn't be the usual anymore for Australian triathletes. Um 
you know, so there was a bit of a history and a legacy of, oh, you know, you do triathlon, you get bone stress injuries. Um, it's just something something that comes with the sport, but it doesn't doesn't have to have to be that way. What areas are you seeing most in those athletes? Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like hip shins and and some sort of stress fractures, but um, what's the most common? Lower limb, definitely, uh, but we can see them, interestingly enough, they can pop up anywhere. We see sacral, pelvic, femoral, and I mean like femoral shaft, femoral head, femoral neck, um, tibial, tibial plateau, patella even, um, fibula, anywhere in the foot. Um, they can, yeah, they can literally pop up anywhere. We won't... Um, I think it ended up being uh, foot was the most common in, in men and um, the somewhere on the femur was, was sort of the most common anatomical location in women. But we can, we honestly, we can see them anywhere. Well, how are you going with getting those stress fractures down? Are you getting good results and how are you going about doing that? Yeah, so we followed, um, I spoke about sort of the, the systems um, as part of uh, um, principles of epidemiology and um it's i suppose to put it in a nutshell like the the main principles of prevention and this is sort of the um the steps that we followed um is looking at what is like the natural um course that a bone stress injury undergoes and understanding really well the pathophysiology of that and then how to apply prevention along that um, continuum or that natural course that the injury undertakes. So I'll, I'll talk about the prevent the prevention stuff in a minute, but it's really it was really interesting coming into the sport and the just the I suppose the lack of understanding of the actual pathophysiology of how bone stress injury comes about. There was a lot of rhetoric and there was a lot of sort of I want to use the word I want to say a wise tales but that's sort of a horrible expression but um, not truly understanding like how bone remodels and what interrupts bone remodeling. So um, a lot a lot of what we did um, initially focused on helping athletes and coaches really understanding how it comes about. So there was this sort of um, misconception around, you know, when you get symptoms of a bone stress injury, then it was events, the events close to those symptoms that was what was causing the bone stress injury. Like, for example, um, say the symptoms and diagnosis were around pain that they they felt around a race. Oh, it must have been the surface that, that you know the athlete was running on, or it must have been the footwear that they were wearing for that race, and not really understanding that it was possibly up to like twelve weeks, even more prior to that, where the bone bone remodeling cycle was being was being disrupted. So really helping coaches and athletes understand how bone remodels osteoclasts, the role of osteoclasts and osteoblasts and laying down of bone and removal of old bone and then how it how it then becomes disrupted and the impact that um, certain hormones and the impact then that energy availability um, has on those hormones, like, you know, for example, like the, the huge, huge, huge role um, in bone remodelling and bone density that oestrogen plays and then therefore the impact that um, not having a menstrual cycle, maybe being amenorrheic or having delayed menstrual cycle and the impact that has on reduced estrogen and then the impact that that has on bone, bone remodeling and the, the start of a, of a bone stress injury and, and um, helping athletes and coaches understand that, 
you know, it, can, it may only take up to five days of having low energy availability, meaning not having enough energy to support the activities that you're doing, so having less energy in than energy out at the basic level. can only take five days of getting that wrong um, to start the sequelae of um, the bone remodelling process being interrupted and to start a bone stress injury and that just when you feel symptoms may have no correlation to what you're doing around getting symptoms as to when and why this bone, uh, the injury may have started. So that was that was just a really, really, a really big piece initially. Yeah, because it's something we sort of touched on a little bit earlier. Like it is funny, like if I'm a, I'm a, a physio by trade and uh, most of our listeners would be, and if, and if someone presents with, you know, um, hip pain that's a, a femoral stress, obviously a tendency may be towards some loading um, components, some strengthening, et cetera, looking at the way they run and move. Um, but as you said, probably the mm-hmm. biggest sort of fish there is 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 really getting their, their energy intake spot on, would you fair to say? You're exactly right. So there, there was sort of a tendency to overemphasize the things that had a small impact on what, maybe why the injury occurred. And you, you touched on a couple of things there. So the, you know, the strengthening and the biomechanical, you said, run, I think you mentioned running efficiently or something, moving efficiently, something like that. Obviously, really, really, really important to move efficiently. Obviously, really, really important to be strong. But we, every day of the week, we could see a triathlete that is strong and moves efficiently and that still could sustain a bone stress injury because they're not because they're not fueling adequately and they don't have the hormone profile to support good bone remodeling and bone health and we have the most beautiful looking runners like they run magically you know think they're floating um you know nothing wrong with their biomechanics and they'll get a bone they can still get a bone stress injury so you've got to sort of look at what's going to have the biggest, like the biggest impact on them. You still obviously want to get them strong and need to get them strong and want them to be moving as efficiently as possible. But if they're not fueling adequately, then there's, you know, they're stuffed anyway. And you also mentioned loading. So that's a really, really big thing. There was um, a lot of sort of the coaches and athletes, I think because we've had a lot of emphasis on loading for like nearly a decade now, maybe, maybe even longer, right? So they, they had a, they had a good awareness of loading, but um, they thought, that, you know, considering loading without considering nutrition um, is is really dangerous. So we we actually see a few stresses occurring at relatively low loads for a triathlete. Like you look at their loads and go, "Oh, well, that's not huge," you know. Why are they getting bone stress injury? So it's just it just highlights that even at low loads, you can get a bone stress injury if you're not fueling for the loads that you're doing, or if you're not fueling in the right way, this is a really big one. So we get athletes saying, oh, I'm eating so much. And then when our, our sports dietitians would sort of unpick it, they were eating They were eating massively at the end of the day. They had three sessions or four sessions maybe even during that day and they'd hardly eaten around the sessions that they were doing. So the timing was out. So eating a lot at night, they weren't getting getting the energy availability for the sessions that they were doing. So that was still enough to set off bone stress injury. And even um, like realising how difficult it is for a triathlete or, or any athlete for that matter that's involved in an endurance sport, the volume and the amount of fuel that they need to consume, it's just so like psychologically overwhelming for them or not just psychologically, it could be just physically overwhelming for them. They're like, I can't fit that amount of food or drink 
in my stomach. It's so uncomfortable. I can't train on that. I don't, I don't eat before swimming because I feel really uncomfortable. I don't eat before running because I feel really uncomfortable. So it was shifting their mindset around it, but also being really, really brave to, to train their stomach to handle the, the volume of, you know, food and, and, um, liquids as well that they need, need to consume and also getting really creative around how they do that. Like being able to consume sort of the highest density or highest, um, calorie density foods that they can around training so that it's not uncomfortable for their stomach. It's also extremely expensive for an athlete um, at the shopping centre. Like I've had many conversations with athletes of like it's just so expensive. Like I just can't buy, I don't have enough money to buy all the food that I need to be eating. There was just a number of barriers that were stopping them fueling properly. Thank you to Kangatech for the support of this podcast. For those who don't know, Kangatech is an Australian sports technology company originally born out of the North Melbourne Football Club in the AFL. Since releasing its second generation technology in mid-2019, the company has seen significant growth with their technology now used by some of the world's highest profile sporting teams across many codes such as the NFL, NBA, NHL, NCAA, EPL and of course the AFL. The KT360 testing and training platform consists of a portable, adaptable, fixed-frame dynamometry system that allows for accurate and reliable measurements of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance, and control. The advanced software analytics allows sport-specific profiling to understand both injury risk and guide appropriate interventions. Accompanying the KT360 software platform consists of both the testing and training modules, so the athletes can work on training stimulus such as a control, strength, hypertrophy, endurance, pain modulation, and also time and attention. For further information on Kangatech, head over to their website at kangatech.com, that's K-A-N-G-A-T-E-C-H, or you can email them at how at kangatech.com. I've briefly read little bits but not extensively around um, the female menstrual cycle and, and is there a correlation with sort of that timing and, and these type of injuries or other injuries in our endurance, uh, female endurance athletes? Yeah, so the, the female menstrual cycle is actually a really, really amazing monitoring tool for female health and not just for bone injury but for, for it, like across any injury really and illness as well. So. Um, being able to sustain a natural menstrual cycle relies on having adequate estrogen levels. And you can only have adequate estrogen levels if you're not in an energy deficit. So you have to be, because your body will naturally, if you're training as much as you do as an endurance athlete, or you don't even really need to be an endurance athlete. You could be, you, you know, you could be AFL training or soccer or, you know, something where you have some maybe like three main sessions a week and then some strength sessions, like it doesn't matter. If you're not fueling for what you're doing, then you can still be in a relative energy deficit. But if you don't have enough base at a very, very basic level, if you don't have enough estrogen, you won't get a natural menstrual cycle. And if you don't have enough estrogen, it won't support bone remodeling and it won't support bone health. So a natural menstrual cycle is a really important indicator of just the physical state of our female athletes. And I often say, like, it's great that that females have a sign that they can monitor, whereas males, we our males have as many issues with relative energy deficit, but they don't have as readily available sign as a menstrual cycle. And so there's there's sort of a lot of things to unpick around the menstrual cycle and female athlete health. Um, what has been done in the past and what we still see with 
with some doctors and um, personnel that sort of aren't familiar with relative energy deficit is they'll, they'll put athletes on an oral contraceptive pill so that they're getting a period. But it's an artificial period and the way artificial um, synthetic estrogen is utilised differently by the body than, than natural estrogen and it doesn't have the same protective effect on bones. Um, so it's, it's just basically putting someone on the pill, yes, whilst they get a period, they're not getting the same protective effect on bone health as estrogen. So we encourage wherever possible our athletes to be um, trying to, you know, have a natural a natural menstrual cycle and not be on the pill. Obviously there's issues around contraception and that's really important and that's up to the athlete to make, you know, educated decisions around how they're going to do that. Um, but it, it really it really helps for the athlete to be able to monitor their health. So if their cycle is delayed, that means estrogen levels haven't been high enough to, for a cycle to tick over. If they miss a period, they know the energy energy levels are too low um, or feeling, you know, they're, they're in relative energy deficit. Um, if it becomes lighter or um, if it, if it uh, is less days than it normally is, like it's a, it's a really, really good tool for monitoring general, um, you know, your general health as an athlete and your risk for any injury and illness, not just, not just bone stress injury. That's really interesting. Bringing all that together and I'm, and um just picturing you in your role, um, how does that all come together for you guys there at Triathlon where um, obviously key different stakeholders, uh, the education piece around energy, the monitoring space, um, how does that all go on it like a day-to-day basis and how do you stay on top of everything? Well, we don't stay on top of everything. <laughs> we, try, we try and stay on top of as much as we can, um, but it's, de- it's definitely not perfect. Uh, we're try- trying to make it better. Um yeah, athletes and coaches need need to have a really good understanding of how and why the injuries come about and then what they can do to um, positively influence that. And I think, I think every athlete should have a good understanding of what training they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, they're sort of, you know, for themselves and to understand themselves and how they can fuel for that training. But also there's sort of, um, an organisational, um, I'll call it responsibility, I suppose, for us to understand um, what an athlete can withstand and remain healthy, and what what you know tips them over the edge. So monitoring um, monitoring training load, I think, is not only is it is is it the cornerstone of um, prevention. Um, well, and surveillance is the cornerstone. So surveillance of training loads, surveillance of injury, illness rates, you cannot have a good prevention program without understanding um, the landscape of the sport, the injury illness profile, but also what the demands that the athlete um, is under. So we spent and, and still spend a lot of time just encouraging um, and coaxing and um getting the basics right and so we don't we really don't do anything fancy we just we try and have a really good understanding of what what training they're doing and then understanding their ability to be able to fuel for that training so a lot of the time we found with once athletes have been 
shown how much energy they burn doing triathlon and what their body requires. And we do uh, we do some yearly um, periodic health evaluations where we look at a number of um, we look at sort of a number of comprehensive sort of physiological, nutritional, psychological. We do sort of testing to try and understand what might be the barriers to the, that particular triathlete's health. So we do that to help them understand what those barriers are and then and then how we can approach it. And so, like I said, we we just try and do the basic things very well. So understanding their training and understanding, um, you know, their physiology and 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 the barriers that they might, they might have to be able to match fueling to training. Yeah, beautiful. It's it's a really interesting uh, topic, and that was something we hadn't planned to talk through. So I'm glad we did. But I'm going to move on to a couple of your other areas of expertise, and one of those was uh, you did some excellent work around the Australian volleyball team when you were at the RAS, um, and that was largely looking at um, you know loading protocols and incidents around patellar tendinopathy. What can you tell us about what you did here? It was sort of a similar a similar process um, that we went through in in sort of understanding what the problem was in in triathlon. So I suppose triathlon, the biggest problem was bone stress injury when we looked at surveillance and looked at the injury epidemiology. And if you looked at um, the same thing in volleyball, um, by far the the biggest concern by incidence, prevalence and burden was patellar tendinopathy. So 8 out of 10 um, volleyballers would have, um, would have, patellar tendinopathy um, and the biggest by far the biggest if you're looking at bang for buck biggest thing contributing to this was uh the what jumps jump load um so again like it, it was very very sort of simple simple things that we looked at was firstly understanding the jump loads so when when i started um it was it was really interesting like volleyballers didn't know how many times a week they jumped um you know they could they can make guesses, but they just they really just didn't know whether it was a thousand jumps, whether it was two hundred jumps. Like they just they just didn't know how many times a week they jumped. So the first thing was understanding what their actual jump loads were, um, and we we implemented some very um, simple um, simple and commercially available um, devices to look at measuring their jump loads. So that that was the first step is was um, looking at how much they actually jumped. And once we understood that and understood like the patterns um, that they'd undergone, the differences between training and competition, um, that's where we could really start to implement um, some jump load management. And um, a couple of, of the coaches at the AIS were really, really key to this um, and really, really on board with looking at um how they could positively influence that. So, for example, um, you know, volleyballers could, you know, senior volleyballers could jump up to a thousand times a week, um, but in competition, this could be doubled. So they'd be going from maybe a thousand times a week in training, and then they'd have a competition week, and they'd have day in day out competition for up to maybe two weeks. Um, where where the loads would double, and it was that discrepancy and not having sort of a nice um, lead in and time for you know the tendon to adjust adjust to those loads that was causing causing issues. So yeah, a couple of the coaches were really really key in um, once we understood what the jump loads in competition were, working back a number of weeks in order to ramp up um, 
ramp up their jump loading leading leading into competition and that that was um we trialled it in sort of the um the programs that were in residence at the AIS and it was it was it was extremely um extremely effective in reducing um the incidence of patellar tendinopathy it nearly pretty much eradicated it mm, that's what uh yeah i heard that you've gone from having eight out of ten to almost zero out of ten with this with this program so sound to be really highly effective um and i guess we uh, we can read a lot about the tendon loading protocols um strengthen you know concentric eccentric whatever we're doing there but there isn't much around jumping and landing mechanics and as you mentioned that's probably the key driver of their pain or, or jumping is the key driver. For someone who doesn't know too much, it makes sense to me that having a, a little bit of a look at your landing mechanics and things may be important, but you looked at this in more detail with uh, Mick Drew and Ebony Rio amongst others. What did you find here? We did. It's really interesting and I feel bad saying this and I'm, I'm such like a similarly to sort of the working triathlon as I feel like what, I've, like what we've done and implemented has been very, very basic and we sort of found the same um, same with volleyball, just do it, doing the basics are really important. We just sort of having an understanding of their jump loads and managing their loads throughout the year and leading in and out of competition and in and out of break periods was pretty much enough. Like we had we had lots of grand plans to to do a lot more. Like uh, I remember when I submitted, like had to submit ethics for the. Um, the papers that we were, in, you know, the questions that we were going to ask, the papers that we were going to publish as a result of, and we did the first two, which was one, understand, um, sort of validating a device to count their jumps, and two, understanding their jump loads and looking at some jump load planning for post competition, and then the subsequent studies we didn't even get to because we didn't, um, we the subsequent studies were looking at ideal. Um, tendon pain reduction programs and the ideal strength and conditioning programs for them and the exercises and the type of isometrics and all, all this sort of thing. And then we didn't have any cases of patellar tendinopathy to do them with. Um, so the study you're referring to that um, uh, we had, a, uh, we had a, a student lead that and she did, she did a really, really great job and looked at some of the the landing mechanics did some really nice biomech analyses. So, I'll, you know, we'll refer, um, put the paper and the reference in there. But I like, I'm ashamed to say that it kind of didn't get to the point where we would have liked to investigate it because it wasn't an issue anymore. Um, but just doing the basic stuff had kind of had kind of cleared it and we didn't. So, sim- similarly to like, you know, bone stress injury and triathletes and running. Um, you know, the biomechanics kind of is null and void if you don't get, like, the loading and the nutrition right, similar to patellar tendinopathy. You get the loading right, you're not going to have to deal with the, you know, you deal less with the biomechanics. So it's kind of nice, I suppose, like the coaches could have worked with, the you know, the biomechanics of jumping and landing from a performance point of view, but it sort of wasn't important anymore from an injury point of view. But if you do it the other way around, it's sort of, um, you know, if you allow the, you know, patellar tendinopathy incidents to be there, then you can explore it and understand it. But it's sort of, you know, going by biggest bang for buck and just getting the basics right gets you the majority of the way there and you don't need to do the other stuff. 
We appreciate the support from West Coast Health and High Performance of this podcast. Chris and the team at West Coast Health and High Performance bring an elite sport environment and facilities that are accessible for the general population. Located at the brand new centre for the West Coast Eagles in Lathlane, they have plenty on offer including expert physiotherapy care led by specialist sports physio Chris Perkins, occupational therapy and nutrition consults, advanced testings such as a DEXA, VO2 and a BioDEX for all the muscle strength testing. Uh, West Coast Health and High Performance is certainly the go-to for any sports physio performance requirements in Perth. Uh, Chris and the team are also available via ta- telehealth for any of our international listeners. So for more information on West Coast Health and High Performance, hit up westcoasthealth.com.au to learn more. We'll touch on hamstrings and you have done a fair bit of work with some hamstring strength um, and you found knee flexion strength was reduced from competition um, in Australian rules football and I believe the protocol that you guys did and the findings were pretty consistent with Martin Wallen's paper on the soccer athletes but um, feel free to clarify that. I have to heavily, heavily acknowledge um, Martin and uh, Martin Wallen and Mick Drew and um, Ben Ben Ray Smith and um, Perds at the IAS because we we literally just replicated a protocol that Martin had used in soccer to see if the findings um, held for AFL because um, Martin had done some really, really great and seminal work around um, fatigue and match play. And it was just it was just so interesting. I was like, oh well, I wonder if this hold, this holds in AFL. So he used a very simple but very reliable and had a very tight standard error of me- measurement and low minimal detectable change, which is what you want if you're using a screening test, um, which is what where a lot of screen you know screening tests go wrong. Um, where the you know if they're they're doing a test and the device that they're using is really poor reliability or has really wide ranges of minimal detectable change and it's not that useful. So anyway, he used um, isometric knee flexion test in um, at thirty degrees of um, sorry sixty degrees of hip flexion and thirty degrees off um, knee extension. Really, really nice test. Looked at it um, before. Um, before a match, so this was when he was doing it in soccer, I looked at it before a match um, and at, at certain, uh, immediately post-match in the 24, 48, 72 hours post-match to see how hams, isometric hamstring strength, um, what the, the profile of that looked like in terms of recovery um, and what he'd found that it reduced significantly immediately post-match and 24 hours post-match by 48 hours it had sort of bounced back. So that would indicate right, this hamstring is possibly, you know, the hypothesis was the hamstring is possibly at the point where it can withstand some additional um, loads or high-speed running or high hamstring load activities, but that in that first 48-hour window, um, you know, that should possibly, those sort of high-risk, high-hamstring risk activities should be sort of minimised until that strength profile had bounced back. The other important thing is that, you know, sort of the majority of, of, um, players, you know, the, their strength, their isometric strength had returned at 48 hours. The idea was as well that if you test at 48 hours and the strength hasn't returned, then possibly you need to give give that player a bit longer, a bit longer to recover before adding high-load hamstring exercises. So we just repeated that um, for an AFL game and it, it was pretty much exactly it had exactly the same exact same profile, which is fantastic. So we're like, well, this would be a great test to implement um, as a as a screening as a screening test for recovery of of hamstring strength post game. 
and I know it's starting to get more widely used and uh, so a lot of that work is I'm sure translating into the, the clinical world. It, it certainly is at um, the sports club where I work at uh, and I've seen it around so it's great work by by you guys. Uh, you took it sort of one step further in a, in a way and, and looked at the, um, the knee flexion strength that was still found to be down um, like post-hamstring injury, even up to three years post-hamstring injury um, where hip extension strength was not down. Uh, and these athletes were, you know, full training and um, full playing, but I guess you could argue not at full function with that hamstring. Um, I guess what do you feel would be the driving factor behind those ongoing strength deficits? And I'm not sure if you sort of looked uh, deeper into that. And I guess um, did was that found to sort of, even though the strength was down, did it find to actually be a, be a risk factor for increased um, re-injury of the hamstring? Yeah, it's a really good question, Nick. And we didn't, um, we looked at using the isometric knee flexion test as part of a tertiary prevention protocol. And this is, I suppose, I, I, I touched on prevention earlier, but just sort of didn't highlight stages of prevention. So this might be a good segue. So basically we've got, it's like uh, going through school, we've got primary, secondary and tertiary prevention. So we can look at it, you know, like the stages of, of going through school. Primary prevention involves elimination of risk factors such that the the injury never starts. You never get the injury. You've eliminated any risk factors for getting that injury. And um, that's a space we absolutely love in epidemiology. We want want primary prevention measures, the stuff that eliminates any risk factors. So if we use COVID as an example, um, primary prevention would be uh, could be immunisation, so that's such that you never get get the virus in the first place, or actually the most effective, which everybody will understand, is uh, don't expose anyone to the virus. So that was, you know, that was our lockdown measures and isolation and shutting borders, um, yeah, quarantining. Um, that that tends to be the most effective. But in sport, the exposure. <laughs> Is not is is the risk, but it is also what makes you perform. So in sport, exposure is training. So training is what causes injury, but training is also what makes you perform, um, and can also be what reduces injury. So you can't remove your exposure. You know, if we don't want any injuries, like no one plays sport, it just doesn't make it doesn't make sense, right? We can't give we can't inoculate people, we can't give them a vaccine, and we can't reduce their exposure. So actually, some might say reducing injuries in sport is actually harder than preventing COVID because we just, you know, lock down the borders and hotel quarantine if it doesn't escape and and that's that. And then you've got, um, so that's primary prevention, eliminate risk factors. Secondary prevention is if you can detect something early and manage it early, then it's going to reduce the severity of the injury. So, um, you know, and this is where screening tests come in and and, uh, the best example for this is probably um, breast cancer screening. So, um, you know, mammograms from women over the age of 50 and if you can detect a lump before it's clinically detectable, um, then you're likely to have a better outcome if you're catching it at, at an earlier stage. Um, so, and this is where Martin in his soccer paper um, was looking at trying to, det- so um, proposing that um, hamstring strength deficits or fatigue may be the start of what ends up, you know, resulting in a hamstring strain. So if you can detect that early, manage it early, 
it might not go on to becoming a full-blown hamstring strain. So fatigue could be the first sign that you're going, you know, that um, the muscle is not recovering, not responding, and that you go on to get a hamstring strain. So that's an example of um, secondary prevention. Now, um, where we looked at the knee flexion strength as a tertiary prevention measure, so tertiary prevention is um, um, thorough, thorough rehab and preventing any further complications. And further complications would be getting another, a recurrence, getting another hamstring strain injury, or getting a different injury as a result of having had a hamstring strain injury. So where we looked at um, implementing it as a tertiary prevention measure was if we could detect any deficits that were still remaining as a result of having had a hamstring strain injury, so hadn't been thoroughly, hadn't obviously been thoroughly rehabbed enough or there'd been things there that weren't clinically, you know, detectable that didn't recover that then result in, you know, increased risk of, of getting another one or getting something else. So we looked at the difference between athletes that never had a history of hamstring strain and those that had a history of hamstring strain and did their strength profiles differ in this isometric strength test that we'd already said has been very reliable, very tight, SEM and MDC. And there was. There was there was a, um, a significant difference in strength between those that had sustained a hammy strain in the past and those that hadn't. And like you said, this was despite the fact that they had been full training, um, no symptoms, played games, etc. So we're proposing to use the isometric knee flexion test as a tertiary prevention measure to see if there were any remaining deficits as a result of having had the hamstring strain that could then increase risk of, you know, sustaining um sustaining another injury so unfortunately that was as far as we got in looking at whether the test was worth was worthwhile to use as a tertiary prevention measure as part of a periodic health evaluation and so um you know periodic health evaluation is looking um um at tests at, at various points in time that for the purpose of tertiary prevention for the purpose of finding any underlying deficits that can then be addressed such that you don't get further complications. Uh, so that was as far as, as far as we got. So it sort of needs needs um needs validating from the sense that can't, you know, next step, like does it then have an effect on um you know, do, uh, doing it as a test and then intervening, does it then have an effect on that person then sustaining another another hamstring? Strain injury. So a little bit more uh, work to go in that space to see if, um, you know, those ongoing deficits that we see post ACL sometimes and also hamstrings, um, we don't really know if they're going to, to increase the risk of a hamstring strain at the moment, do we? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we always talk about hamstrings a lot and we also talk a lot about groins, but we're about to touch into a little bit of groin because you did do a PhD on groin injury uh, prevention. Um, but we, before we do that, we do uh, have you and very lucky to have you talking at our upcoming groin symposium in athletic groin symposium in Sydney. So that's on this October and uh, Andrew Wallace, Steve Saunders, uh, Martin Wallen, who we've spoken about there, um, Andrea Mosler and yourself uh, are rounding the list out at the moment with with one more likely to join us. Um, what are we likely to, to hear from you at this at this event? 
What a, oh, that's an amazing lineup. I'm feeling very extremely humbled to be part of um, part of that lineup. And um, yeah, having having uh, worked with Martin and seeing seeing the amazing things um, he was able to achieve when um, when we we're at the AIS together, um, and you know the rap the rap sheets of the others. Um, yeah, they're you know so. Um, have made such a big difference to the progress, progression of knowledge um, in groin pain, athletic groin pain. Um, it's in, incredible. Um, my, I suppose, uh, you know, my area, my co- contribution to that um, comes from, yeah, being a physio and a strength and conditioning coach and just really, really, really valuing um, understanding the, the principles of strength and conditioning and, and how to practically practically apply that. Um, think, things have progressed a lot, obviously, since since I was at uni or even, in, you know, um, undergoing master's programs for that matter, and I think they've progressed really favourably in this space. But we, you know, we didn't um we didn't have a huge or big enough probably focus on exercise prescription and you know what what it means and and how it can be used and I think um physios with the additional um with some you know additional training and strength and conditioning are in a really good position to have a really positive impact on athlete rehab um especially especially lower limbs so yeah my my love and um um you know what why I got into it in the first place was really understanding um principles of strength and conditioning you know, what is hypertrophy and and what what does it mean and what does it look like when you're prescribing for hypertrophy so like we're, we're able I think as physios to assess something like atrophy really really well but then can we we really make a big impact if we're uh, applying principles to make it, high, you know, make it hypertrophy. Um, and same, same with strength, um, same with strength, same with endurance. Um, the other big part, sort of looking at some being able to uh, coach it, so being able to teach an athlete how to squat, how to deadlift, how to single leg squat, how to how to move really well, um, to to be as strong as you can. Like these um, sort of main the main li- the main lifts, like an exercise like a squat, is just the most important. Um, um, the ability to squat well is just so important for any athletic pursuit, so any sport. Like you need to be able to you need to be able to squat. You need to be able to uh, you know your push exercises and your pull exercises and how that you know how that applies to the the sport that you're working with. So I think um, think that's what I'm going to try and bring to the table. Lovely. I'm looking very much looking forward to it. So, um, and I'm sure some of the other things you will touch on is some of the findings uh, out of your PhD, which I mentioned, looking at uh, groin injury prevention. Uh, and we did chat to Christian Thorberg on our last uh, podcast, which um, obviously very big with groin and groin injury prevention as well. So, I guess uh, a huge effort to do a PhD, but I, to ask in brief, I guess, in relative term for a podcast, um, what'd you find here? What'd you look at? And I guess, um, to summarize it, what are some essential components in your opinion around that space that we can implement as clinicians? Yeah, so I suppose if there was anything um, I'd want people to take away is to have a better understanding of 
the principles of prevention and like I, I mentioned primary secondary tertiary and what you can and what you can apply in each space and it kind of it doesn't matter what injury you're looking at preventing you can follow the same uh, follow the same process so um, that that would probably be my key take home um, is is more the process and the system that you follow as opposed as opposed to the specific injury so it, you know if you're looking at groin what things can you do in the primary prevention space so you know understanding what what are the risk factors and how to eliminate those risk factors and then what can you do in the secondary prevention space so how can you detect it early how can you manage it early so that you can reduce its severity what can you do in the tertiary prevention space how can you rehab it fully and how can you prevent other things happening as a consequence of having had that groin injury so they don't go and get another injury or they don't go uh, at a different site, body part, whatever, or they don't go on and get a recurrence of that injury. So um, the, the PhD, interestingly enough, I was on groin, groin and hamstring. Um, it was looking, you know, looking more at um, applying the general principles. It, was, it wouldn't sort of matter what, what injury you were looking at. Okay, and, and I guess to tap into your, your knowledge there of both physio and the strength and conditioning component, if we're if we're in the tertiary component uh, or tertiary uh, phase of our system there, and um, how important is it for you to uh, link the components of our early physio-driven rehab and um, with our strength and conditioning knowledge and return to sport through that phase? And and you know you mentioned some of the key lifts earlier and, and key things. Is there certain things that you're like, well, this is where I really like to get the athletes to, or yeah. that you're working towards? There's two parts to that. So it's looking at what are the demands of the sports, what do they need to get back to, and if I suppose if we take AFL for example, you're looking at you know run loads of. Uh, 30 30 plus k a week maybe 30 30 35k a week maybe slightly less in season um in se- like in season loads you're looking at half of that coming from um coming from a match um and then you're looking at the the speeds um that they you know ha- the distances and the speeds that they're, they're running as well so however many k's of um you know, speeds over three and a half metres per second and how many over five and a half metres per second and how many of the, like, really top-end top, top end speed as well. So that's the sort of conditioning conditioning component so that athlete needs to be able to get, get back to that and needs to be able to have done enough of that to withstand to withstand that. So that's the, the conditioning component. And then you look at, like, what, what are their strength requirements? So you look at something like running, change of direction, cutting, how much single leg activity is involved in that and how much um, like opposition of body weight forces plus, um, you know, external forces if the opposition is a rugby player, um, scrums and tackles and tackles in AFL, what what they're going to need to withstand to counteract those forces, not just to be able to perform in that sport but to not get injured again. So, you know, in rugby they're going to have to be, be able to squat like at least double double their body weight, like um, and and close to close to that in AFL. They're going to be able to squat that. They're going to, be going to need to be able to deadlift that. They're going to be able to have to be able to um, single leg squat or some sort of derivative of single leg squats. Pretty heavy, pretty heavy stuff to be able to withstand that. So I think where where we often fall short of physios is we do a lot of the, the early stage rehab lots of theraband work and um that it just doesn't get either progressed quickly enough or it doesn't get progressed far enough so i think um 
I think those things were, if you understand what the demands are and the forces that are put on uh, that the athlete is exposed to internally and externally on the field, then they need need to be able to be prepared for that. So that, um, and I just think we possibly haven't um, done an, um, enough in terms of external load or progressed it, or, or possibly we might be able to progress it a little a little bit faster, a little a little bit more, and we just haven't got to that point. Yeah. Perfect. All right, and I'm sure that's a, it's a really nice takeaway from, I guess, rounding out some of our groin stuff that we'll, one, go through at the conference, but also, two, um, bringing in your knowledge of that space and also the preventative side of things and how it all comes together. Uh, but I guess final topic, and we're, we're nearing the end of our little chat, is a little bit around an editorial you, you were involved with, and, it was, and I think it was titled, Who Owns Injury and Illness and Who Owns Performance? Uh, applying Systems Thinking to Integrate Health and Performance in Elite Sport. Um, nice, nice title. Um, engaging br- brings you in, uh, but what can we'll talk us through this? What what's that about, and what was the um, thought process? We engaged in um, well, one one of the smartest people I know, Mitch Mooney, uh, who was working at uh, as a performance analyst AIS at the time. So so smart, and um, he, his suggestion of um, involving. Um, someone completely uninvolved in sport but had a had a PhD in philosophy, we were just sort of trying to understand um, like how in how injury is is part of the greater um, how, where it fits in part of the greater sport system and how that greater sport and when I say greater sport system, I mean um, the coaching environment, the athlete group environment, all all the di- all um, the people involved in that that person's diagnosis and rehabs and sports physicians and physios and SNCs and um, in terms of um, and it was a really in terms of like where it fits and then how can that be maximally impacted as a result of being aware of the greater greater system that that injury is a part of sounds really wordy um, there's a really great diagram in that that I'd um, that I'd refer you guys to have a have a look at to see like we were looking at sort of feedback loops, how one thing one thing feed, feeds into another. Um, and I suppose we titled who who owns the injury, who owns the performance, because um, it was it, it was just interesting, like an isol like an isolated single event, something like an injury, but how that was affected by the system the system around it. So we were yeah. Uh, it was an editorial because we were just we were just throwing things throwing things back and forth. Well, who owns it? Clearly, physios own it all. Would you say? Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. When it when it goes well, you want to own it. When it doesn't go well, you don't <laughs> want to own it. That's very true. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll encourage one, um, everyone to have a bit of a read through that editorial and and tune in. But. Um, now, Paula, it's been amazing to have a chat, and I'm sure um, if people wanted to touch base with you, they you're on. Twitter, I believe, and I'm sure they could send you a message if they had a, a really key question they wanted to ask or something like that. Yes, yeah, of course. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, we'll see you at the Growing Conference um, and, and I hope uh, everyone enjoyed uh, listening to you. I thought it was really insightful uh, and some really great ways we can implement both our prevention systems uh, into both uh, team sport but more individual-based sports and some really interesting topics at the start around um, you know, bone stress and uh, female athletes. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. It's really, really fun chat. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Cheers. Thank you.